The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. guys welcome back to the tragedy cinema podcast i'm your host jimbo and i'm kyle kyle yeah um this month of october has been pretty crazy this will be coming out the first week of november um so with that being said i think this will be our last horror uh movie for a while Mm -hmm. uh, since we've been heavy on that the last few weeks we have Um, so we'll shelf it for a little bit but I wanted to do this movie because Kyle's never seen it, and I wanted to get his knee-jerk reaction to watching Phantasm from 1979. Um, and just from the little tidbits of talk we've had, I know that he is not really a big fan of this movie. So uh, it's going to be a little divisive, maybe. <laughs> Kyle. Yeah, you have a question for me? I do. You do? Um, awesome. In this, in this uh, movie, there is uh, Angus Grimm, who's known as the tall man, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, has there ever been a nightmare scenario for you where the same 
person is chasing after you? Um, no, no, no. Um, in my childhood, I definitely had nightmares, um, but it's always usually kind of like monstrous kind of things to some degree. I have like a, a, a had a, a large arachnophobia for a lot of years in my life. I've gotten a lot better about it now. <laughs> well, there's a spider uh, on your shoulder. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I had a dreams a lot about that too. And um, now, if I ever have bad dreams, it's usually not about like being in scared, but being angry, which is very odd for me. So I might have broader psychological things. One of those things, like a therapist just scribbles down a notepad as soon as I says that. <laughs> down all like, this, you don't have down anger, you have now. anger dreams. That's not good. <laughs> Um, better so, than real life anger. Yeah, better than real life anger to a degree too. Maybe it's a repressing some emotions. Probably is, but <laughs> <laughs> see what that is. Um, but Jimbo, have you ever had any kind of like reoccurring character nightmares? Or no, like not. I mean, I've had a, a reoccurring dream where you, several times where you've had you like I know I've had this dream before. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> the same thing. But I think I've told this on the podcast before. The uh, earliest nightmare that I remember having as a kid, and I was man three, maybe four. Is somehow we were getting on an airplane, and on this airplane was Maleficent. Oh. And the old mm-hmm. cartoon thing, and she yeah. was trying to kill me, and the plane was going down and all that. So that's that's the earliest memory I have of a oh, nightmare. You know what? Actually, I can go back a little bit. I did have nightmares from one of the um, um, El- Nightmare on Elm Street films, because I think it was the it was one of the ones where like a guy was driving a motorcycle, and like Freddy like, like put like wires into his arms and stuff like that, too, and controlled the motorcycle like too. I remember that freaked the heck out of me as a kid when I watched it, and I had nightmares about, like, Freddie, like, especially, like, getting wires and piercing my skin and stuff like that, too, and, like, taking control of me that way and killing me that way. I had a few of those nightmares. I remember that, actually, very specifically. So, I guess I at least have one character, and that'd be Freddie Cooper. No more <laughs> appro- No more appropriate a character, right? <laughs> um, so, that, that's okay. a good one. Kyle, too. Freddy Krueger, Jimbo, the evil queen from Maleficent. <laughs> <laughs> Equal horror yeah, icons. <laughs> Jeez. All right, okay. Well, I'll get into it here, Jimbo. Okay. We have the film Phantasm, released on March 28th of 1979, directed by Don Cascarelli. Ha ha, got the pronunciation right, Jimbo. He's asked me 17 <laughs> times how to say it. I had to write it phonetically. And he wrote so it down could... wrong. <laughs> That's a good thing I had in practice. Phantasm exactly. uh, follows the story of a teenage boy and his friends as they face off against a conspiracy grave robber known only as the Tall Man, who employs a lethal arsenal of un earthly weapons so cool there so once again directed by Don Coscarelli written by Don Coscarelli um, produced by Don Coscarelli cinematography by Don Coscarelli editor by Don Coscarelli (laughs) and production designer by Kate Coscarelli (laughs) (laughs) and composed by Fred Meyer and Malcolm Seagrave (laughs) budget for the film was an astonishingly low three hundred thousand dollars and just for inflation today it'd be about 1.3 million dollars we have some trivia later on going to explain how like the same the film was made that for that insanely low of a budget for the same day but the only one that kind of like um reminded me of that was like sam raimi's original um book of the dead um back in the i believe 80s i believe uh, made for a similarly like astonishing low amount of money, but this film um, it looks more expensive than three hundred thousand dollars. It looks more expensive than the Book of the Dead, frankly. So we'll get into some of that details later about how they did it for that um, inexpensively. Um, but it's absolutely incredible. It was made for just three hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy nine. That's just astonishingly low for how 
how good this film looks or how expensive this film looks. So impressive on that front. Um, so moving on here, we're going to move on to the quick little awards section. Um, we only have um, t- just two uh, awards um, worth mentioning right here. We have the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Film Awards. Where in 2017, it had the, won the award for Best Blu-ray slash DVD Special Edition re-release for the Phantasm Remastered release in 2017. Then next up, we have the 1980 Awards for the Academy of Science Fiction and Fantasy Horror Films, sorry, where it was nominated for a Saturn Award, and it also won a Special Jury Award, which I have no idea what a Special Jury Award is for the Science Fiction um, um, Awards, but they were won that. Runtime, this film has a runtime of just 89 minutes, so a short and brisk, kind of like, you know, a great horror movie length, actually. You know, I'm kind of a big fan of, like, you know, either 90 minutes or three hours. You know, don't go in between, you know. The uh, closer you are to either one of those times, the better you are overall. <laughs> in my, in my, in my, in my, um, quality checklist, I guess. Sound Mix. This is actually just, um, original release had just a mono track release and a four track stereo kind of, um, um, sound mix. So, um, very, you know, simplistic for the time, but also makes sense again for that $300,000, um, um, uh, you know, production budget. Next up, we have a, um, color info film. This is actually a Technicolor film, which gives it a, like an interesting kind of nuanced look that no other film really has, or like every other Technicolor film has rather, but like gives it that interesting kind of color dynamic that only Technicolor can really replicate. You know, even today we can't really quite get a Technicolor look unless you just film directly in it. So that's pretty impressive for a while. Aspect ratio is a standard 1.85 by 1. Um, cameras used were the Lens and Panaflex cameras by Panavision, another very, very commonly used camera for the time. Um, standard, standard, standard laboratory um, setup too for the Technicolor Hollywood in California for the processing for the remaster. And it was also done in Metrocolor and Culver City in USA as well. Um, negative format was 35mm and the printed format was also in 35mm. Um, let's see if we have any other fun facts of the film there. That's going to cover all the technical details. So we're going to move on to the cast, which is also short and brief because a lot of these actors, um, they kind of like, they either hit a little bit of like the horror movie film production chain where like they appeared in like three other horror movies that weren't as iconic as Phantasm is, or they appeared in like all the sequels of Phantasm, of which there are numerous movies in the Phantasm series themselves too. So I'm going to kind of like just go through like, you know, this actor maybe one other movie and that's going to be all of them for the roles and also we only have 17 cast members here in general so I can just go through them all real quickly so first up we have A. Michael Baldwin no relation to my knowledge to the Alec Baldwin um, playing the role of Mike um, Michael Baldwin was also in the films Phantasm Ravager in 2016 and the film Brutal in 2012 next up we have Bill Thornby playing the role of Jody. Bill Thornby was also in the film Phantasm 3 Lord of the Dead in 1994 and the film The Lost Empire then we have Reggie Bannister playing the role of Reggie. Hard to remember his name, right? <laughs> Actor struggle. What's my name? Reggie. Oh, it's Reggie. Cool. So Reggie Bannister. Reggie Bannister was also in the other Phantasm movies. Next up, we have Kathy's Kathy Lester playing the role of the Lady in Lavender. Kathy Lester was also brought back again for Phantasm Ravager in 2016. Then we have Terry Calbus playing the role of the fortune teller's granddaughter. Um, Terry Calbus was also in the film Kenny and Company in 1976. Then we have Kenneth V. Jones playing the role of Caretaker. Kenneth G. Jones was also in the film Kenny and Company in 1976. Susan Harper played the role of Girlfriend. Yeah, very complicated role there. Susan Harper was also in the film. Uh, oh, actually, um, it just listed right here as a film Phantasm 1979. So next up, we have Lynn Eastman Rossi playing the role of Sally. 
Lynn Eastman Rossi was also in the film Project X in 1987. Then we have Ralph Richman playing the role of bartender. Ralph Richman was also play, um, playing the role of the bartender. Sorry, Ralph Richman was also in the film Kenny and Company in 1976. Then we have Bill Cole playing the role of Tommy. This is the only film that notable mentions for his cast list. Laura Mann playing the role of Double Lavender. Um, once again, only film mentioned for their cast list. Then we have Mel- Mary Ellen Shaw playing the role of the fortune teller, which was also in the film Kenny and Company. You know why she was, says Double Lavender? No, I don't know because what she playing the because the main lady didn't want to uh, uh, be nude. So oh, so she's she the double, double lavender. She was, right. She's naked lavender then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the snake and liquid snake thing. <laughs> Solid snake, liquid snake, lavender, double lavender. I want to see that movie. Um, Meryl Scott, Myrtle Scotton played the role of the maid. Myrtle Scotton was also in the uh, notable entry. Was just Phantasm in 1979. Then we have. Angus Scrim playing the role of the tall man. Uh, Angus Scrim was also in the film. John dies at the end in 2012. Then we have Don Coscarelli playing the role of the funeral grass, uncredited, of course. And Kate Coscarelli also playing the role of the funeral grass, uncredited. Uh, but they also appeared in John Dies at the End and Kenny and Company from 2012 and 1976, respectively. And that concludes the cast list of Phantasm. So, very short and brisk for the technical details of Warden and cast list there, too. We're going to move on to the trivia and go through some of those. Well, Kyle, uh, something I just found um, the filmmaker Roger Avery, actually, uh, Avaney. Uh, actually had uh, Greenlight Phantasm 1999 AD featuring none other than Bruce Campbell what? in a major role. Yeah! Could you imagine seeing Ash versus the Tall Man? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. Anything <laughs> that gives Bruce Campbell good work, I'm all for. But it, it, it Bruce that it basically failed funding, so it just Aww. got scrapped. So. Oh, man. Sorry. Dang. You just, you just brought my hopes soaring and then plummeted down. Of course. You just made me in the, the I'm Icarus. <laughs> Uh, the mansion used for the exterior shots of the mausoleum uh, was also seen in the movie Burn Offerings and the movie A View to Kill. Never heard of them. <laughs> really? A View to Kill, never heard of that one, or the other one you mentioned. You see what I deal with, people? Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Coscarelli's and Reggie Bannister's parents uh, can be seen as extras in the funeral scene, and uh, I also know that he did that as a way to save money, too. Yeah, because they were, Right. <laughs> yeah, you want to be in a movie? Okay. Yeah. Tell everyone related to to come to the funeral home real quick. <laughs> so Dress the, in black. All the dwarves that look like Jawas, which we'll get into some more later, uh, they were actually played by children. Oh! So. That's an effective way to get small people, I found. And not only that, but also probably didn't have to pay them as much, too. (laughs) (laughs) So Yeah. And also, I bet they probably weren't respecting child labor laws. Right. (laughs) So the coolest part of this is obviously the flying ball. Um, I remember that from my childhood. I just mentioned Don Coscarelli driving around in a van. What, are we in a movie? (laughs) (laughs) He's got to save a buck. Give you some candy. <laughs> oh, wow. As a white man. Uh, the flying ball scenes were simple special effects. The sphere was thrown from behind the camera by a baseball pitcher, and then the shot was printed in reverse. The ball attaching itself to the caretaker's head was filmed by sticking it on a on his head and then pulling it off and printing the shot in reverse. So That's pretty impressive work. It looks like it moves like 
like it's floating in midair very, very effectively, actually. Um, I wonder if they were using like a high speed camera or something. Oh, they're just using a Panaflame Legend, so. Well, somebody's but, a baseball pitcher throwing, they can throw 100 miles an hour, so. Well, no, no, but I think, like, that's the point, because it moves too slow, in my opinion, because, and it looks very, very clear in the shots that it's moving in. Like, for a 100 mile an hour, like, fastball, it would be very blurred by the actual film stock of the film itself, so it's kind of amazing that it looks as clear as it does while moving through the pitcher frame. So, impressive work there. I wonder if they actually told him to, like, throw it slower. Hey, so throw it a slow, slow pitch. Yeah, slow <laughs> <laughs> on the metal ball thing. <laughs> oh, man. Cool. Uh, the stone-looking interior of the mausoleum was actually constructed of plywood and marble-colored plastic contact paper. Yeah, very effective, very cheap. It looked and, really like, cool. Yeah, it looks very effective on the film. Like It looks like a totally like marble room, which would be very, very expensive, obviously, in right. real life. But in this case, it just worked perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, the f- title was changed to The Never Dead for Australian audiences so as not to confuse it with the popular Aussie sex comedy Phantasm, which was also known as Phantasma. That's fantastic. <laughs> you had to get those two mixed up to show. Yeah, I want that double feature DVD of Phantasm and Phantasm. <laughs> the sex, the Aussie sex comedy. <laughs> and the 79 horror film would be great. You know, science fiction double feature. Um... <laughs> <laughs> At around eight minutes of the movie, uh, the coffin that Mike sees the tall man lift by himself and shoved back in the hearse was made out of balsa wood, empty, and had a rope on the side facing away from the camera to make it easier to handle. The rope can be seen briefly, seen as the tall man lifts up the cabin, or the sorry, the coffin, the cabin. That'd be really impressive. Be really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the film's original running time was more than three hours long, oh but gosh. writer and director Don Coscarelli decided that that was far too long to, for it to hold people's attention and made numerous cuts to the film. Some of the unused footage was located in the late 1990s and became the framework for Phantasm IV, Oblivion. The rest of the footage is believed to be lost. Oh, that's sad. Uh, this is uh, this is one of the reasons why Don Coscarelli's uh, budget was so low because he rented all of the filming equipment used to make this movie always on a Friday so he could use it all weekend and return it on Mondays all the while only actually having to pay for one day's rental on the equipment. That's, that is so brilliant. I, I feel like that has to be a lie or something like that because like the rental company would would know, right? <laughs> Just charge him for the whole weekend. But I, I'm amazed if he actually really got through it that way. That's that's incredible. Because then, like, everyone would just rent their equipment on a Friday. <laughs> so the origins of the story came to Don Coscarelli in a dream. One night in his late teens, he dreamed of fleeing down endlessly long marble corridors pursued by a chrome sphere intent on penetrating his skull with a wicked needle. There was also a quite futuristic sphere dispenser out of which the orbs would emerge and begin to chase. Yeah. I... I, I... It captures that feeling, too. This this film definitely has an entire dreamlike quality that, of course, follows through the ending of the film entirely. We'll get to more of that detail later, but definitely a different film. It's just like, this is unearthly, and that's where it kind of goes back to that alien science fiction point of view as well. So, yeah. Uh, to get the inspiration needed, Don Coscarelli spent a couple of weeks in an isolated cabin in the mountains outside Los Angeles while writing the script. Uh, Don Coscarelli got the idea of the tall man's living severed finger while drinking from a styrofoam cup. He punched his finger through the bottom and started moving it. He loved the visual effect and decided to include it in the story. And then, like, mutates into, like, a weird, creepy fly thing, which I didn't understand at all, but was crazy. I love how, like... It was strong, like... Yeah, incredibly strong. Even, like, his incredibly buff older brother was like, oh, 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 no. Put it in the garbage disposal. Then he survives the garbage disposal, then he gets a knife. Which is is funny, because he takes the knife and he starts... And then his brother turns on the garbage disposal. I'm like, this dude's... Stabbing him down into a garbage disposal. 
It's yeah. a very weird scene. Once again, makes sense for dream logic, not makes sense for real life at all. Yeah. At around the 15-minute mark, the song played on the front porch by Reggie and Jody, Sitting Here at Midnight, was actually composed by Bill Thornberry himself. Uh, the spheres were designed by craftsman Willard Green, who charged the production a little over $1,100 for his services. Sadly, he died just after production completed at the end of 1977 and never saw his work on the big screen. Oh. Uh, Don Coscarelli's mother, novelist Kate Coscarelli, held several titles on production, even used two aliases, S. Tyler and Shirley May, for production design and makeup and costume design, respectively. She also wrote a novel adaptation based on the film. It was published in 2002, and only 500 copies were produced. Now, Kyle and I looked this up. Mm-hmm. And go for it, Jimbo. Yeah. Go, for, go ahead. You got it? Oh, yeah. It's, 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 they produced an adaptation of this film. It only produced 500 copies. And I believe Don Coscarelli also signed all yeah, they 500. And, yeah, they numbered and signed all 500 of those copies. And I was looking online on the, some online forums, and I saw apparently like, some of those are selling for upwards of $600 a piece, all the way down to $100 a piece from Genesis for the more the more used version of those 500 copies, especially. But I bet like if you like dig through online searches, you might be able to find some of those copies still sitting at marketplaces overall, but it seems to be like kind of like kind of a, a pass along through all the fans of this series occasionally, kind of going back and forth and trading one copy back and forth for a hundred dollars piece, something like that. Too. It'd be cool though. So it's kind of interesting. Like I bet, like it's one of things. Like if you really want to, you could probably get your hands on this copy and sell it again later for the same price you bought it for, more than likely. If not so more, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so here we go. There are several references to Frank Herbert's Dune, including a bar named Dune. And a scene where Mike is forced to insert his hand into a black box that inflicts pain as part of a test. No. Another really weird scene in that movie. Yeah, because it's the, unrelated to the other horror stuff kind of going on. Yeah. She kind of just sits there kind of like the uh, grandpa in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> I thought she was dead for a second. And I was like, yeah. then she starts laughing. Um, so, A, Michael Baldwin learned to drive in, in the car um, as he was only 14 at that time. Oh, so they're just really driving a car then for that yeah. scene? With the, yeah, oh, that that's because, well. yeah, the whole, th- he didn't know, he didn't have the yeah, knowledge of, of dude, right. Yeah, yeah, or they're so not going to hire a stunt driver, so after make the, the kid drive. After the movie was finished, the car was sold, and to this day, nobody's sure what really happened to it. Oh, wow, that's a weird yeah. thing. Yeah. And as a result, the black Hemi Cuda j- became just as much of a hallmark to the series as the Chrome Spheres. Hmm. It's awesome and insane, too. It, 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 it is. The Black Hemi Kuda is a star of the show, let's be <laughs> honest. <laughs> uh, some say uh, Coscarelli ripped off the Jawas from Star Wars, uh, but the design for the doors was already completed before Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope was even released. Mm. Um, at around five minutes uh, in the scene before the funeral, when Jody is confronted by the tall man for the first time, Bill Thornberry proved to be nearly as tall as Anger Scrum, so Scrum had to perform the scene standing on an apple crate. <laughs> it's funny. J.J. Uh, Abrams, co-writer and director of Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, revealed in an interview published in Entertainment Weekly that he came up with the name of the Captain Phasma uh, character after seeing its chrome design. It reminded me of the ball and phantasm. So the role that was played by um, the I lady... Forget, the I forget late, the name from Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yes. I can't remember I'll her name. Up. I'll look her up. Uh, it's going to hit me. The Bree... Something Brie, ain't it? No, it's not Brie. Uh, we'll go. It is uh, Brie. No, it's not Brie. I'm telling you, it's Brie. It's not, it's not Brie. That was her name in Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, she was the... Oh, yeah. Oh, oh She's yeah. also in Wednesday. In the show, her name is Fasma. Yeah. Uh, um, Gwendolyn Christley is yeah. the actor. Uh, Entertainment Weekly ranked this as the 17th scariest film of all time. Kyle is the 17th scariest film of all time. No, it's not. <laughs> um, she's Brienne of Tarth in Game of Thrones. Yeah. 
Um, at around one hour and 22 minutes in the final scene where the tall man says the line, Boy! Boy! His hair is cut significantly shorter than it was previously in the film. Hmm. Speak, speaking of haircuts. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah that's uh, is a little behind that. the scenes. Today, Even though you'll get it later. Yeah, <laughs> today is the day that we're going to shave Kyle's haircut for the new, uh, or for the live, live show, show this weekend. Which this is coming out later, but so we can say, well, we can tell. Like, I'm, I'm going to be Uncle Fester in that show. I so, was Uncle Fester in that so show. So when you see Kyle, um, totally bald, no eyebrows, <laughs> it's going to be no awesome. Uh, okay, so uh, this is filmed as the same mansion as "So I Married an Axe Murder," the oh, uh, yeah. Dunsmuir House and Gardens in Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, here it is. A body double lore man was used in the opening scene of the cemetery. The lady in lavender, Kathy Lester, did not wish to be filmed topless. That's fair. A Mary Ellen Shaw was cast as the last minute as the grandmother fortune teller. The original actress cast declined the role when she realized they'd be shooting on the day of her nephew's birthday. Aww. What a sweet little, a sweet grandmother. In the aunt. cemetery, a headstone that is featured prominently in two separate scenes is that of Cecilia Weiss. Do you know who that is, Kyle? Uh, it sounds familiar. I don't know. What it right. was actually Harry Houdini's mother. Oh. Uh, with most of the actual inscription included. So... Uh, there we go. In the commentary of the film is introduced by Angus Scrim. Okay, this is the one I was telling you about. Okay, okay. <laughs> Who explained that he asked, was asked by Don Coscarelli to do the film. Coscarelli only told him that he would be playing an alien. To which Scrim began wondering which country the character would be from and what accent oh. he would have to perfect. Like that one actress in Aliens who just thought she was going to be Hispanic. <laughs> <laughs> Little did he know, uh, uh, he'd be playing an actual alien, an extraterrestrial, like the outer space guy. You know, that's one of those weird things where, like, I don't know if I grew up just like, you know, do people like grow up like this today, or am I just weird in my own saying, like, where it's just like, the moment if I hear the word alien, I think extraterrestrials, but some other people, when they hear the word alien, they think Pablo. <laughs> Like I don't, I don't understand that. I really don't. You know, <laughs> that's why I saved it for the podcast instead of telling you. Yeah, <laughs> your got, reaction is priceless. We got to ask our friends from Texas when if they hear alien, they immediately think extraterrestrials or they think Pablo. I don't know. <laughs> I really, I got, I gotta, I gotta nail that down someday because I don't understand how someone with the, you're gonna play an alien and they think they're gonna play a foreigner. Like no. <laughs> Oh, man, that's great. Uh, the man in the opening scene is played by Bill Cohn, who wanted more than anything to be killed off in one of Don Coscarelli's films. Coscarelli obliged him. Uh, the actress of the scene is Kathy Lester, played by the Lady in Lavender, was uncomfortable filming the nude scene, so that side of the role was handled by a body double. Double Lavender. Lester insisted the woman filling in for her got her own credit, which explains the double Lavender credit. According to Bill Thornsbury, who plays Jody, Lester wasn't comfortable filming with Cone either, as she didn't know him well. The legs sticking into frame in the opening of those are of Lester and Thornberry. <laughs> the mansion standing in for the exteriors of the Morningside Mortuary is the Dunsmore House near Oakland, California. Don Coscarelli notes that they had two days to shoot all of the scenes within the Dunsmore House, and all of it was shot in order. The interiors of the mausoleum were sets. Coscarelli mentions how smooth the floors were on this set and how this allowed them, even on the tight budget, to get a lot of camera movement in the scenes shot there. He also mentions the set builders were right out of college and had no idea how movie sets were built and actually built the structure to last. 
Only a small section of the hallway was created, and the production changed furniture and decorations around the shot, uh, or around and to shoot it differently, to appear as a full mausoleum. That is really impressive too, because it makes it look incredibly consistent as well. I, didn't, I never thought they were the same room, just reshuffled, right. but that's incredibly impressive, actually. It, uh, it gives that it gives it that alien spaceship feeling a little bit of just like everything is so perfectly designed in that one spot, so everything looks similar. Because in my mind, the mausoleum is just you know a huge maze of marble, basically like that. But of course, being one room is incredibly effective. Good so, on them. Um, Good on them. before Star Wars came out, George Lucas, um, before the film came out of Star Wars by George Lucas, Coscarelli was already shooting the Phantasm. At some point, the similarity out to him after seeing uh, the Jawas in the trailer. They were discussions to make the creatures in Phantasm a different color, possibly gray instead of the brown robes they and the Jawas seemed to both favor. Coscarelli mentions so many of the scenes with Phantasm's dwarves had been shot already, and they decided just to keep them in their brown robes. I think it was the right choice, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Don Coscarelli notes his frustration with a lot of horror films uh, he watched when he was younger. He would see ads for these films and be frightened by what he saw in the ads, but the movies themselves rarely lived up to that. He wanted to make a film that... Uh, a scary moment at least every five minutes. Uh, I think he got there, actually. Yeah. Uh, the casket Angus Scrim picks up by himself was made from paper mache. Uh, Scrim notes the handles were styrofoam cups. He had to lift the casket from underneath with one hand and uses a rope that was tied to the other side to pick it up. He notes it wasn't heavy, just cumbersome. We took the dead body out. <laughs> he also mentions it fell apart on the first take, but they were able to pull uh, off three takes. So, Oh, nice. But see, here's here's one uh, Angus Grimm saying that, hey, it was paper machine earlier. It was Bossel Wood, so one of them's got to be true. Yeah. Uh, there's an ongoing joke for the audience to pick up on in Phantasm where you try to spot as many Dos Equis bottles as you can. The film had a promotion with the uh, – I'm going to butcher this – the Kahutamak Moctezuma Brewing Company, and Don uh, Coscarelli remembers going to his production manager's house and seeing 50 to 100 cases of it in his garage. There were times, he mentions, where the cast and crew would drink the lager for breakfast. Oh, my God. Lager. Lager. Yeah. Uh, Bill Thornberry takes a page out of Kathy Lesser's book, refused to show his bare butt on the film. The stunt butt. <laughs> the stunt St- butt. Stunt butt. Was, uh, played, stunt butt. <laughs> was, I think I'm going to call you now the stunt butt. Was uh, played by the film's key grip, and Don Coscarelli even kicked the stubborn Thornberry off the set that night. They met up and went to a Dodger game shortly thereafter. Oh, it's funny. This was shot over the course of a year with cast and crew members getting together only on weekends to shoot straight through the three days. They're coming for you, Jimbo. I know. They're coming for you, Jimbo. Uh, Don Coscarelli mentions that they had no permits and even had to tap into local residents' homes for power. Jeez. <laughs> it should also be noted Coscarelli was 23 when filming began and 25 when it was released. It was also his third feature film, his first two, which had been picked up by Universal and 20th Century Fox, respectively. That's incredible. Mike's, I'm actually in that in my mid-20s. Yeah, Mike's surreal dream involving his bed in the middle of the graveyard and the tall man standing over him was one of the first images Coscarelli came up with after conceiving the initial idea. This shot uh, would end up serving as the film's poster. It's a good poster, dude. The big question is, is he in agony or is he in ecstasy? Mentions Don Coscarelli during the scene where the tall man is reacting to the cold air coming out of the Reggie's ice cream truck because you see him stopping. Smell. Yeah. Uh, Scrim mentions it's very ambiguous. Thornberry mentions that's the way he reacts every time he opens his refrigerator. (laughs) But, you know, uh, and then later on I read that it could be because he's from a hot planet. Yeah. And that's cool air feels good. Yeah, cool. It's a rarity. So anytime you have to, like, feel you have to embrace it, even if it's bad or good. Yeah. 
the display head that falls into Mike's arms as he's searching through the main house in the mortuary was initially supposed to be a cat. We didn't have a cat, says Don Coscarelli. So somebody, I think maybe our in- intrepid makeup designer, Kate, came up with that idea of using a wig stand. Oh, here we go, Kyle. This sounds like something you would do. Don Coscarelli notes that they had to run of a local funeral home one night to shoot. The man who was in charge of making sure they didn't break anything was an embalmer who would come watch them shoot between working. The director remembers one night when the embalmer was eating a donut, heard the back door bell ring, and say, Oh, I got another one. He promptly left donut in hand to receive the corpse. It was really morbid. <laughs> I'm sure it's frowned upon, but I'm sure it happens a lot where it's like, after enough death bodies, you know, it's it's like, it's just work. Yeah, it's just work. It's just like you're used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Don Coscarelli handled the camera work for the film, sometimes at the risk of his own safety. In the ca- a chase sequence with Mike driving and Jody firing the shotgun at the pursuing hearse, Coscarelli was sitting in the trunk of the Barracuda, Thorbury fired the shotgun almost directly at him for one shot. No one on the crew being aware that even a firing a blank sh- uh, shoots out a hot projectile that could kill at close range. Yes, it can. That is very dangerous. Very lucky he didn't die right there. Yeah. <laughs> Unaware of how filmmaking is supposed to be handled, some of the car interiors were, uh, were shot with the actors actually driving the car. Don Coscarelli was not privy to the poor man's process of getting those shots shooting inside a stationary car and moving lights around to make the car appear to be moving. Angus Grimm is not the actor's real name. His real name is Lawrence Rory Guy, which people refer to him uh, in person. On the commentary, you can hear him. Uh, you can hear the other three calling him Rory at times. As Grimm explains it, he had, uh, if he had, he had to pick a stage name for when he would do plays off campus, presumably when he was in acting school. He wasn't allowed to appear in plays off campus and chose the name Angus Grimm in case he was mentioned in reviews. It's a stage name uh, he uses to this day. Sadly, he passed away. So, Oh, yeah. sad deal. I believe. It's been I a while since Funky Mountains. Yeah. Uh, you said it for wrong now. Do I? You said it for wrong now. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think he did die. Okay, look that up, Kyle. If I think, not, I think we'll kill he, him. I think okay. he died. Well, really, uh, Angus Scrim. Okay, there were times uh, filming scenes with Baldwin, Thorberry, and Reggie Bannister, where Baldwin had to sit in, uh, for hours in front of a roaring fire. Don Coscarelli remembers they had to strap aluminum foil to his back to keep him from getting burned. He passed away in 2016. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Don Coscarelli wanted to establish was a psychic link between the two brothers. The moment when Mike is pushed out of the back of the car by the dwarf creature and the film comes back and forth between him laying on the road and his brother looking uh, was added to help create this link. It's something Coscarelli would build on um, with the sequels. sequels yes. oh, cool. To this day, I just thank God no one ever tried to duplicate this or I've never heard about it happening, says Don Coscarelli, about the exploding hammer mic device to break out of his room. <laughs> I'm sure there's people who have tried to, they just aren't around anymore to tell anyone uh, where they learned about it. <laughs> That's funny. When the tall man reappears uh, at Mike and Jody's house, the original idea was to have him still missing all of his or fingers. Mike has severed earlier in the film. A long, phony arm was created for Angus Grimm to wear, but it stuck out over a foot beyond his actual arm. The idea was dropped, and the tall man's ability to regenerate missing limbs was devised. Initially, the flying ball was only supposed to make the one appearance early in the film. It came off so well, though, that Coscarelli decided in the editing stage to add the extra sequence near the end. Mm -hmm. After Reggie opens the gate and the canisters begins (laughs) being sucked into the space gate, you can see a red weld on top of the actor's head. This was the result of one of the cancers hitting him squarely on the head in an earlier take. <laughs> That's funny. No one mentions any prolonged effects it had on Bannister's mental state. <laughs> that can't be a coincidence. Uh, because I think uh, 
in the sequels, he's in a mental hospital. Or one of them is. Hmm. Um, it wasn't decided until late in the production to have the Lady in Lavender be an incarnation of the Tall Man, which was weird too. Uh, Don Coscarelli remembers this was a revelation for actress Kathy Lester. It was a real, uh, rev- revelation to me too, says Angus Grimm. Michael Baldwin jokes that Scrim still has his lavender dress. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, the effect of the mansion disappearing in bright, colorful light was done by Joan Westheimer, who did what, Kyle? Do you know? No, we do. He did many of the effects on the original Star Trek series. Oh, awesome. The effect uh, on the mansion is the same one used for the transporter sequences on the series. That's really cool. One house to beam up. Ding. Wow. Okay, now I see it. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm thinking about it. Like, yeah, it is. Uh, cool. The effect of having the door pulled off its hinges and flying into the house was achieved by having co-producer Paul Pepperman standing behind the door, which already had its hinges removed. He then ran full force into the house, holding the door in front of him the whole time, making it appear as the door had magically flown off. If you look very carefully, you can see the door bouncing along instead of flying smoothly. <laughs> Let's see here. At around 1 hour and 12 minutes, at the end when Reggie comes out of the funeral home, the production installed a wind machine with a huge fan blowing to create the effect of a very strong wind. As a joke, A. Michael Baldwin started throwing stones in front of the fan that went on to hit Reggie Bannister and Kathy Lester several times. Oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, young people. <laughs> this film was originally rated X, uh, effectively banned by the MPAA because of the famous Silver Sphere sequence and because of the caretaker urinating on the floor after falling down dead. Oh. Los Angeles Times film critic Charles... Um, Champlin, not Charlie Chaplin, but Charlie Champlin. Champlin. Uh, or Charles Champlin. Made a phone call in favor of a friend on the board. Thanks to him, Phantasm was downgraded from the original dreaded X rating to a more acceptable R rated. Nice. Champlin's positive reviews was quoted of the film's promotional posters. Uh, after filming the scene where his character is killed by one of the silver spheres, Kenneth Jones was too tired to, to have his makeup removed, so he drove home as is. But on the way, he was pulled over by a police officer who was naturally suspicious of him being covered in fake blood and didn't immediately buy his story of being an actor. <laughs> That's funny. And yes, last but not least, as expected, the audiences that Don Coscarelli saw the film with its early days of release was not pleased that the whole entire movie was a dream. Was a dream. He credits Reggie Bannister and Michael Baldwin's performances for capturing the audience's attention. Well, and that's kind of weird because he does like have the dream within a dream where he wakes up from the nightmare with the old man yeah. pulling him in. So. so, yeah. All right, Kyle. Let's tell the listeners your first viewing of Phantasm what your feelings and thoughts are. Um. So, my feelings right now. Right now. Right this Right second. at this very moment. Is feeling like a 6 out of 10 for me. Not bad, but not very strong either. I feel like maybe I wasn't in the right headspace to properly enjoy or engage with this when, it first, when I first watched it. Kind of thing, because I didn't know what to expect what I was walking into. But kind of like the more I kind of think about it, the more I ruminate on it, like maybe there's more going on here that I just didn't appreciate the first time I was watching it too. So I'm kind of curious if like, you know, sometime you might cover the sequels or I might just get my own a bug up my butt about watching the sequels myself and trying to learn like what's going on in the lore here too. But there's definitely kind of something going on in this film that's kind of special in its own way that no other film quite does so I really appreciate on that level too it clearly had a huge legacy for many of the special effects going on in the film and especially impressive for how um, uh, uh, small the budget was for this film how much they accomplished with that too so in many respects it's incredibly impressive and kind of makes it its own kind of surreal film that's worth watching for anyone to watch I'd recommend anyone watch it even though I give it a low rating just because like no other film kind of looks like it in my kind of opinion um, or or 
it captures that particular dreamlike quality that this film captures. Very few films even come close to it, I think, in that kind of aspect. So it's a, a strong film in, in some of these specific ways, but kind of a weak film overall for me. Where like, eh, like I would think recommend any, anyone can watch at least once, but you're not necessarily going to enjoy it. It's kind of like the kind of weird soft referral I give to it to a degree. So. Um, I, th- I think there's there's more going on here. I may come to love it in time, but right now I'm a little bit like, yeah, I might forget about it later. So we'll see how that goes for me in the future. But um, yeah, that kind of mixed, messy thought I just had is what my thoughts are right now, and I'm kind of going to leave it there. Jimbo, I'll pass it off to you. What do you think of this film? Uh, yeah, it's probably six and a half, maybe a seven. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for when it came out, the effects that it achieved for the budget that it had are outstanding. That mausoleum looked like it was real. I mean, I, this, the whole still plywood does. with the, yes, yeah, um, very well shot. Um, it has some cool practical effects, which I like it because there's not a lot of CGI. It's it's all practical effects, and I think yeah. I'm a big component of. I think practical effects always look better than CGI. Uh, you yeah. being a younger man might think differently. Um, I like what they can do with CGI now, but I think sometimes you just got to go back to the roots. You know what I mean? The practical effects is where I like... It's hard to resist the appeal sometimes of what you can do with CGI. Cause sometimes, right. like, sometimes like... Well, you can do a whole movie with CGI now with no no actors at all. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But see, well, not to get the whole CGI debate, too, but I think like it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful tool, and so you want to use it for everything. You want to use it like... It's, it's the... Um, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you have CGI, everything looks like it should be solved with CGI. Right. That's kind of the problem with CGI in all kind of films I, I view in, in all media, too. But at the same time, like, I can, like, grant, not alive in 1979, but I can imagine, like, if you watched this film when it came out, it could have blown your mind what was kind of going on, too. And some of the darker stuff they had, too. Like, dude, like, and not only like, that, but the tall man was creepy. Yeah, he had a creepy did vibe, a really too. good job. And also, just kind of like the, the, the kind of the gross factor, like, the things that when you, like, they give it the X rating before. Before, before it came out, like so, yeah, too. Like a man urinating himself when he dies, like that's a gross and, and terrifying reality that makes it look um, more real and more, you know, softly scary in a way too. Like you're disturbed by because it it's a real man dying. But too. you know what? To me, and, when, when that happened, I didn't think it was urine. I thought it was uh, like like embalming fluid, I guess, because I thought he was like one of the, oh, if you're home, like he's a hen- zombie or something henchmen. like that too. Like, of, well, I thought he was like yeah. one of the henchmen, you know what I mean? Yeah, some so, form of undead. But now that I read the notes, it makes sense because it was yellowish, but I thought it was more of like an embalming oh, fluid. I, for me, I immediately recognized, like, oh, it's definitely a urinating thing right. too, but also like it makes it more darkly real in a way that feels unnerving. You know, there's a part of, you know, being so um, outrageous that it allows you to, you know, like, allow your disbelief to settle in a face of fun in a horror movie, but having simply, like, the defecation upon death is something that's, like, ooh, it, it reminds you how real death is and how disgusting it can be. But see, here we know? here we are once again that it's supposed to be a horror movie and ends up being, like, a science fiction movie, mm-hmm. which we yeah. just saw that in Rocky Horror Picture Show. We've seen that in a couple of other ones, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, the tall man is definitely a scary character. Mm. Um, I guess the sequels will come to play to see how really scary he can become. Yeah, uh, yeah. which I'm going to make Kyle watch. So he, sometime, sometime, not immediately. Let's oh, we might be doing it the next five weeks. Kyle. Five yeah. weeks, just nothing but phantasm. We're yeah. the phantasm Fab podcast. You'll be, now, you'll be fantastic phantasm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes you got to watch the movies you don't want to, Kyle. So no, I agree. I agree. I, I, yeah, I, I so, have plenty of movies that I appreciate so that I don't like. There are stuff in this film that you can appreciate. Is it going to win any awards and knock you off your socks? No, but for a movie of that time period, I think it's really well done. Mm-hmm. I'll just be warned. There is a little bit of nudity um, in this movie. 
there's a little bit of language and there's a little bit of gore. So yeah. Um, but yeah, that's it. So if you want to follow us on the social medias, we are the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast. Um, you can uh, email us at the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast at gmail.com. Any last words, Kyle? Um, thanks to everyone that came to our live show. That has, that has now passed. We really appreciate everyone that came down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I hope you like my Uncle Fester costume and uh, Jimbo's uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Um, Doc's costume. <laughs> future. <laughs> Doc Emmett Brown. <laughs> yeah. All right. With that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Click.